0: After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to your word this morning desperate to hear from you. So Lord, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in a couple of days, we're going to be gathered around friends and family celebrating Thanksgiving. In fact, whenever this sermon is over, (laughs) uh, we are going to be celebrating as a church family. A little history lesson, though, on October 3, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national day of Thanksgiving to be celebrated on Thursday, November 26. And then in 1939, President Franklin D. Roosevelt changed Thanksgiving from the last Thursday in November to the second to last Thursday in order to create more shopping days before Christmas and improve the economy. But it's believed that Thanksgiving is modeled after a harvest feast shared by the English pilgrims of Plymouth and the Wampanoag people in 1621. And so Thanksgiving is a time to celebrate the blessings that God has given us. And this morning, we're going to be reading about a time when Jesus went to celebrate at a feast. At this feast, he healed this lame man on the Sabbath. And while it's important during this season to remember and celebrate all the physical and material blessings that we enjoy, we must also remember the great spiritual blessings that have been given to us by our Savior. And so I hope this morning as you reflect on the gospel message, as you are reminded of God's grace and the loving compassion of Jesus, that it leads you to be thankful. And so... In John chapter 5, we have this turning point in John's gospel. Up until now, Jesus has been dealing specifically with individual people. Think about his conversations that he had with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, or the woman of Samaria. And then last week, we read about the official who came to Jesus for the healing of his son, And in our text this morning, while Jesus interacts with this individual man at the pool, things become more public. More attention is drawn to Jesus, and it leads to hatred from the Jews. And they determine to destroy him, to kill him. And so for those of you taking notes, I've separated this passage into three different sections. In verses 1 to 7, we're going to see the misery of the lame man. In verses 8 and 9, we see the mercy of Jesus. In verses 9 to 18, we see the misunderstanding of the Jews. And the main point, which I hope you see in the text this morning, is this. And I guess it's a little bit of Thanksgiving related as well. We should be thankful for the healing power of Jesus that brings redemption and rest. We should be thankful for the healing power of Jesus that brings redemption and rest. All right, so the first thing we see in the text is the misery of this lame man. As we we begin, let's take a look at the setting in which Jesus performs this healing. So verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after this is loosely connected to Jesus' time in Galilee, Sometime after that, Jesus and his disciples went up again to Jerusalem because there was a feast being celebrated. And normally, John will tell us exactly what feast is happening, but in this instance, he just calls it a feast, which means it's not that important for us to know what exactly the feast was, but it's important to know that Jesus was drawn back to Jerusalem because of this feast. And so Jesus, being the faithful covenant-keeping Israelite, went up to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, John sets the scene for us. He narrows the focus from this entire city of Jerusalem down to a specific location. Look at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind lame and paralyzed. And some recent archeological evidence has actually verified both the existence and location of this pool, which is now called the Pool of St. Anne, but it was originally called Bethesda, which means House of Mercy. And surrounding this pool were these roofed structures And then laying in the shade of these structures were lots. John says a multitude of people who were blind, lame, and paralyzed. And if you have a Bible that is not the King James or the New American Standard, you will notice that verse 4 is missing. Look at it. You got verse 3 and then verse 5. What happened? Where did verse 4 go? Like, do I need to get a refund for this thing? The reason why verse 4 is not included is because we now have access to better and older Greek manuscripts, which don't include verse 4. And so scholars are convinced that verse 4 was not in the original manuscript. But at some point, as people were copying the scriptures down a copyist inserted some extra information to explain why people were gathered at this pool. And so in some of your Bibles, it says, "'The sick were waiting for the moving of the waters, "'for an angel of the Lord went down in certain seasons "'into the pool and stirred the water. "'Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water "'was healed of whatever disease he had.'" And so there was this idea that when the pool bubbled up, there was actually an angel stirring up the water. And so the sick would rush down into it, and whoever got there first was believed to be healed or have the opportunity to be healed. But more than likely, these uh, pools had springs that were located underneath them that may have had healing qualities, And this story of an angel was more of a folk legend. But this does help explain why the sick would lay around this pool. They believed that there was healing power in it. And so Jesus walks through this area and he focuses in on one man. He singles this man Out And in verse 5, it says that this man had been an invalid for 38 years. Although his sickness is not mentioned here, most likely this man was not able to walk. And so for 38 years, this man has been lying down on this mat, unable to get up, unable to walk around. Can you imagine not being able to move? for 38 years. That's a long time to suffer. And in verse 6, John writes, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus sees this man who has been suffering for a long time and asks him this question. Now, at first, that question seems kind of strange. Do you want to be healed? Isn't that why the man is there? He's waiting for the bubbly water. But in asking this simple question, Jesus wants to know what this man really wants. Jesus is doing heart work here. If you really want to get better, you really need to want to get better. Because some people don't really want to be healed. Getting better means a changed life. For this man, it would mean that he'd have to give up begging and he'd actually have to go out and find a job. For this man, it would mean he'd have to stop wallowing in self pity. He couldn't complain anymore, he couldn't blame anyone anymore. And so, that question do you want to get better? That's a great question for Jesus to ask because it helps this man see his helplessness and to recognize how lacking in hope he really was. Look at how he responds in verse seven. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Notice he doesn't even answer Jesus' question here. Instead, he explains what normally happens when the water gets stirred up. He says, since I have no one to help me, someone always gets into the bubbly water before me. Could you imagine the mad scramble that happened when that bubbly water happened? This guy is desperate to be the first one in. Do you see the the condition of this man? Do you see his misery He's unable to help himself. He's desperate, hopeless, a little bitter. Have you ever been like that? Have you ever suffered for so long that you were looking for any way to remove the suffering, to be healed from it? And I'm not just talking about disease any type of suffering. This man admits that he needs help, but he's looking for it in the wrong place. The pool represented healing and hope when all it really was was religious superstition. He thinks the solution is in the water, not in the man standing before him. We see the misery of this man, and now notice the mercy of Jesus. Jesus does something he doesn't expect. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. This, this was, must have been shocking for this man. Clearly, he expected Jesus to help him down the next time the water started stirring. But Jesus says, Get up, arise. Notice there are three verbs there. Just like the three verbs that Jesus gave the woman of Samaria. Remember, he told her, go, call your husband and come here. Jesus tells this man, get up, take up your bed and walk. Three things that this man could not do for 38 years. By the power of Jesus' word, he's able to do them instantly. Jesus did not touch him. He only spoke the same word that spoke into the dark void at the beginning when the world was created that said, let there be light. And there was light. That same word spoke to this man and he rose up from the darkness of his condition. Look at that, verse nine. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Wow. What a powerful moment. Jesus finds this man in a crowd of sick people and he heals him with just a word. We see the mercy of Jesus towards sinners and sufferers here. But this moment is not only a miraculous event in which Jesus heals a man, but it's also a sign. Remember, we've talked about signs. We talked about signs last week They're symbols that point to something greater. And so, this healing is a sign to all of us. This man is a picture of what we all are like by nature. We are helpless. The many gathered, waiting for the water to be stirred, is a representation of broken humanity, the blind, the lame the paralyzed, they all point to what we are spiritually without Jesus. This is a sign and symbol of the problem of man, the problem in which Jesus has come to deal with, the condition of our nature. The focus here is on the hopelessness and helplessness of man due to sin. The problem is not merely that we are lost or that we need to be redirected or that we need to be educated. We all suffer from the disabling disease of sin, which means we have a total inability to change ourselves. The gospel is often poorly illustrated as this man who's lost at sea and who has thrown a life preserver and all you gotta do is just grab onto the life preserver. That's a poor illustration of the gospel because the reality of our situation is that we are dead at the bottom of the ocean and have no hope of saving ourselves. Ephesians chapter two says, those outside of Christ are dead in their sins and trespasses. We are all like this man, hopeless and helpless without Jesus. And it's important for the church today to understand this, to understand that sin is the problem of man. It's important for the lost to understand that they are sinners and totally unable to change themselves. The Christian gospel is not that God comes in His grace and love to meet us, and then we contribute something of our own, and then the mixture of God's grace and what we do produces salvation. That's not the Christian gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that I contribute absolutely nothing to my own salvation, but the sin that made it necessary. That's the gospel. And we are all in urgent need in our day, especially in our day, to understand this. This man needs something that he cannot provide for himself. This healing is also a sign that points us to who Jesus is He is the Son of God who redeems through his healing mercy. Jesus provides our great need with his greater mercy. This man has a great need. He needs healing and he can't get into the pool. And so when Jesus asked this man if he wanted to be healed, the man's focus was on the pool, the house of mercy. But he didn't realize that the true house of mercy was asking him the question The true house of mercy was offering healing right then and there. The man has a great need and so do we. We need healing from our sin. C.H. Burgeon once said, I have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for my need. Amen? Amen? Notice another thing in this passage. Though the This man is healed even though he's undeserving of Christ's mercy. He has done nothing to deserve mercy. He didn't even answer the question right. He says, man, I've been waiting to get down into that pool, but no one shows up to help me. Someone always gets in first. But Christ in his infinite love and mercy and grace extends healing to this man. He did nothing to deserve this. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that it's not a first come first serve gospel. This man didn't need to be the first one in the water. Christ came to him. Think about all the other sick people around the pool. And Jesus chose to come to this man. When the man was incapable of going into the water, Jesus Came to him. In other moments of the Gospels, there are people that come to Jesus and and seek him for mercy. But here Jesus comes to a man who was not seeking him, and he asks, Do you want to get well? Yes, we are urged to call on the Lord and to seek him, and yet at the same time, Jesus is said to be the one who has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus is not just a savior with the power to heal us from our human condition. He is a shepherd who seeks out the lost. There are many of us in this room that have that testimony, right? You were not seeking God, and yet God sought you. That's what we see that Jesus does in this passage And so church, we serve a savior that has come to us, who has pursued us, who loves us, who saves us, who suffered and died for us. And notice he's the one who does all the work. Do you know why it's good that we don't have to do the work? Because we are unable to. We are just like this man, just like all those people at the pool looking for healing. We are unable to pay back the debt that we owe God because of our sin. That is how grave our sin is. And so we need Jesus, we need his mercy. And now if you don't think that you have anything to be thankful for this coming Thursday, you must not know this Jesus. Because we who know him know that no matter what circumstances come our way, we can be thankful for the fact that Jesus has saved us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his loving mercy and grace. So no matter what you're suffering with, Jesus knows. Look again at verse 6. Jesus saw this man and he knew that he had been there a long time. Jesus has divine knowledge. He knows what you're paralyzed with. He knows what you're suffering with. He cares and he has compassion. So we have seen the misery of the lame man. We have seen the mercy of Jesus. And lastly, let's look at the misunderstanding of the Jews. Look again at verse 9. So at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man that said to me, Take up your bed and walk, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. The the scene shifts here, right? And notice that John gives that one detail. Now that day was the Sabbath. You'll notice Sabbath is mentioned a bunch of times after that. Christ was intentional about healing this man on the Sabbath. This didn't happen by accident. But what a disturbing scene. This man, for the first time in four decades, was walking. He's healed. And the religious leaders come not loving this man, not rejoicing in the fact that God has worked in his life. They're concerned because he's carrying his mat because he's working on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was given to God's people in Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments, and it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On the Sabbath, we are to rest from our normal work. We imitate our creator who worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. The Sabbath was designed to help people, God's people, get rest and to have time specifically devoted to the Lord. But it was never designed to burden them. To claim that a man who was just healed is breaking the commandment by carrying his bed is a complete misunderstanding and abuse. These religious leaders were adding to what God had commanded. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the Pharisees wrote a book on the Sabbath, and it was called The Sabbath and How Not to Break It. And Jesus wrote a book on the Sabbath too, and it was called The Sabbath and How to Enjoy It. Here is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who came to heal and restore And the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath is to demonstrate to us again and again that you and I are not capable of saving ourselves. And yet here are the Jews trying to save themselves by keeping God's law and having no compassion on a man who had just been healed. Imagine being so religious. I mean, this was the church of the day here. And being angry that someone was healed. Instead of rejoicing in what God had done and and his power, these men wanted to stomp it out. And so my question to you, my question to myself this morning is, how do we respond to Christ's mercy the Jews were more concerned about a man that was breaking the tradition than a man who was miraculously healed. They ask him, "Who told you to do this?" And this man says, "I don't know his name." It's evidence here. We we don't know for sure, but it's kind of evidence that this guy wasn't a believer yet. And Jesus kind of disappears into the crowd. But Jesus shows up a little bit later, finds this man in the temple, and once this guy knows Jesus' name, he goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Again, we don't know. Maybe he was witnessing to the Jews that Jesus was healing him, or maybe he was this tattletale. That's not the point of the story. Look at verse 16. This is what happens after he tells the Jews that it was Jesus. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Things are starting to heat up. The religious leaders say, He's healing people on the Sabbath. He's telling people to break the Sabbath, and now he's saying that he's God. We've had it with this man. What they don't realize is the fact that Jesus is teaching here that God works on the Sabbath. Even though God rested from his work of creation, he didn't rest from being God. God did not stop working on the seventh day. He continued to sustain his creation and uphold the universe even on the Sabbath. This opposition to Jesus is building Think about this. We're only in chapter 5. And it's already getting very ugly. Instead of worshiping him, they sought to kill him. These men sadly misunderstood the law. They misunderstood the miracle. They misunderstood Jesus. Here we see the blindness of the religious leaders. Remember, John is pointing us back here to the beginning of the gospel. He says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But church, God works on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. God does not rest from being God. This points us to what Christ came to do. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. We see that work accomplished on the cross. We don't have to trust in the law, we don't have to trust in religious tradition. We can trust in Jesus who worked for us in order to give us rest. Only through Jesus can we find mercy and grace to enter into true Sabbath rest. So what are you doing to try and save yourself? That's what these religious leaders were trying to do. What are you trying to do to save yourself? because when we get to heaven, Christ will not look at our church attendance or how much we gave or even how much we loved people. He's going to look if we trusted in his work, what he has done for us, that he came and lived the life that we could not live and that he died the death that we deserve. Do you trust in that? Anything else is works. And how do we respond to Christ's mercy? In verse 14, when Jesus finds the man in the temple, he says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Not always is sin associated with sickness. We see in chapter nine, there was this man who was born blind and the disciples asked Who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus says neither. But sometimes, sometimes our sin results in our suffering. And it's possible that this man's sickness was brought about by his sin. And so Jesus shows him that what he needs physically is only a picture of what he needs spiritually. His greatest need wasn't healed legs but a redeemed heart. Christ is telling this man and us to sin no more so that nothing worse may happen. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about hell. He's talking about eternal separation from God, the judgment that is coming to those who do not turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. And so if you are here this morning and you aren't a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to believe in him, to turn from your sin and repent, to sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. The evidence of someone who has been saved is that they will not go on sinning anymore. Now, that that doesn't mean that you're sinless, but it means that your desire is to be free from sin. We respond to Christ's mercy by living a life of holiness because he's saved us. And so where are you at this morning? What are you suffering with? Is it your sin? Is there some sin that you're holding on to? Don't hold on to it any longer. Give it to Christ. Is there unforgiveness in your life? Is there bitterness? Is there a lack of joy that you want to be healed from? Today is the day to come to Christ. Guess what? You don't have to be the first one to him in order to be healed. Whoever comes to him, he won't turn away. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote this book in the uh, wrote this in his book, The Bruce Reed. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Whew, that's a good line. That should be quoted a lot more than it actually has. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Praise God for that. And so you may not be lying invalid for four decades. Your life may seem like it's going okay, but by nature, we are all like this man. All of us need the mercy and redeeming power of Jesus. And so when we look to the cross, And think about Christ shedding his blood. It was my unrighteousness, my rebellion that put him there. And yet it was him going there that heals me of that. There's no greater display of the sovereign mercy of Jesus than him lifted up on the cross for your sins and taking the hell that you deserve That's Bethesda. That's the pool of healing. That's the house of mercy. He does all the work so that you can find rest and redemption in Him. Have you seen your helplessness? Because apart from Christ, you are just like this man spiritually. Look to the cross. Go to the one who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And as we gather with friends and family this week and we share what we're thankful for, may the gospel be at the top of our list. We should be thankful for the healing power of Jesus that brings redemption and rest. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you conscious of our sin problem, of our inability to save ourselves. And we are thankful for your saving grace, for Jesus coming from heaven to rescue us from our sin and from all that sin has done. Lord, we confess that we often hold on to our sin that has made us unwell. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us and help us find freedom from our sin. Show us the ways in which we are trying to work out our own salvation. Show us the ways in which we are living a workspace salvation rather than a grace-based salvation. And help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Give us thankful hearts for the fact that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We do not deserve mercy. We do not deserve redemption. We do not deserve the rest that we have in Jesus, but you are a God of grace. Help us to be thankful and share this with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.